Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your uh, abounding grace, your loving kindness, your mercy shown to us in and through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for divine sovereign grace. Lord, as we've been looking at these points over these past few weeks, I pray that they will resonate within our hearts, that we would grow uh, with a greater thanks and appreciation to you for all that has been done for us. And that which you have begun, you will faithfully complete according to your promises. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, beloved, um, looking at the doctrines of grace as we have, have over, this is week six now. We did an introduction and then we looked at the five points of, of the doctrines of grace um, under the acrostic tulip. Uh, the goal isn't... It hasn't been to make you a Calvinist per se, uh, but a Biblicist, but a Biblicist. Uh, like Calvin, who, who had a, ha- a heart that was bound and determined uh, by the Word of God and, and simply got the Bible right, uh, most specifically with regard to soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. And on these five points, uh, the scriptural evidence, I think you have seen, or I hope you have, is so overwhelming that that God's sovereign grace in salvation is no way, in no way difficult to understand. Uh, But that's not to say that it's not sometimes difficult um, for our reason to accept. Um, Especially if you were weaned, naively weaned on Arminianism. Um, The biblical content that establishes these five points Um, is overwhelming. Um, And as we see them emerge off the pages of Scripture, we have to remember that any truths um, within Scripture um, that are difficult to accept is true because they do not align with our emotions. They do not align with our concepts and reasoning of human will and understanding. It's important that we understand that all our faculties used to gauge all these glorious truths are fallen. Our emotions are fallen. Our reasons and ways of thinking are fallen. Therefore, they must be realigned under the authority of Scripture. Because what we'll have a tendency to do, by, if we're driven by our emotion and how we respond to what the authoritative Word of God says, we will be inclined to reconstruct or recalculate um, doctrine that is clearly taught in God's holy Word. Can I get a witness to that? Amen. Very good. Now, in studying the doctrines of grace, or what's known as the five points of Calvinism under the acrostic tulip, T-U-L-I-P, this is indeed, beloved, the heart and soul of our soteriology. If you don't know that by now, hopefully that's evident um, here at Pacific Hope Church. However, they are not all that we preach. Sometimes we get people who come here whose eyes have been opened to the doctrines of grace and they think that every single sermon has to cover one of the five points. You ever meet people like that? See, balanced preaching won't allow for that. As foundational and fundamental as these five points are, providing direction to everything else throughout this glorious story of redemption known as the Bible Um, You cannot be true to the text and and preach continually on the five points alone, as some people 
do. You, there's usually young, zealous guys who do that. But at the same time, we will not compromise with man who, whose desire it is, is, is to exalt himself and strip God of some of the glory due his name uh, when it comes to salvation. So we could avoid the subject altogether. Um, we get, certainly get along better with everyone else if we just ignored it. Uh, we'd be much more popular if we ignored it or if we breezed over uh, these glorious truths. But this morning, all that being said, this morning we come to the fifth petal of the tulip under the letter P. It stands for uh, the perseverance of the saints, or we might refer to it as the preservation of the saints. And that is that all true believers, everyone who's been born again from above, will persevere in the faith to the end. Because they will be preserved to the end. So because they're preserved to the end, by God, they will indeed persevere to the end. Now, this point counters the fifth erroneous point of the Arminians, the followers of Jacob Arminius, who formulated those five heretical points and that is their fifth point was, was falling from grace. Falling from grace and thereby losing something that you once gained. And it stands to reason if man can will himself to be saved, he can certainly will himself to lose something that he once gained for himself. It's classic Arminian thinking. I was in the doctor's office this week. I was there to get some blood work, you know, for a physical and all. I'm sitting in the lobby. I'm filling out my little questionnaire information they need. And I heard someone say, uh, Mr. Leader. And I looked over and I thought it was the guy calling me back to the doctor. And it's this brother in the Lord I've known for a number of years. Sweet guy. Very weak in theology, especially with regard to soteriology. He says, I, I heard that you're pastor in a different church now. And I'm so blessed to hear that. He goes, so you're still a Christian. Oh, that's not all. That's not all. You're still a Christian. Good job. <laughs> Good job. And as uh, is, is I was just starting to, to launch off on a, uh, look, brother, I am a Christian. And because I am a Christian, I'll always be a Christian by the grace of God, right? But anyway, they call, then they actually called me in so I couldn't go. But anyway, that, it fits perfect with this type of thinking. Good job that you're still a Christian. Look at Jude 24. Look at the doxology here in Jude that will, will spring out of the text into this. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now, now and forevermore. So Jude closes his great epistle with, with the statement that we are kept from falling. We're kept by God to be presented as blameless before God, who alone deserves all the glory. Now, writing to the Philippians, Paul writes, Philippians 1.6, He who has begun a good work in you will what? Perfect it. He'll complete it. He'll bring it to conclusion. 
So God promises that what he starts in our souls, he most certainly intends to finish that work. So the, the, the old adage here about the, the perseverance um, or preservation of the saints is this. If you have it, you'll never lose it. If you lose it, you never had it. It's that simple. That is, if you have have genuine saving faith, you have been born from above, the Holy Spirit resides in you, you are in a state of saving grace that can never be lost. That's why it's called eternal life. Now, most of you have probably come up in and or around the old cliche, once saved, always saved. Right? There's no problem with those words uh, as much as there's a problem with the meaning of those words, which usually puts the emphasis on the person who makes a confession with their mouth of faith in Jesus Christ. They perhaps made a decision for Christ, walked the aisle for Christ, signed a card in dedicating themselves to Christ, and therefore they are viewed as being in forever because of this thing that they did. Once saved, always saved. And they think then that they're saved because of some external act that they did. And by doing this act, they inaugurated salvation. They inaugurated it. Where the reality is, in due time, it's revealed that they're devoid of the Holy Spirit of God. Because what they once confessed, they no longer confess. Some think that because they were baptized as an infant, they see themselves as a covenant child of God, having passed their confirmation questionnaire, which I did. They passed a membership interview, perhaps, and they think that they're in when reality is that they're devoid of the Holy Spirit of God. They might know some stuff, but they're not known by God. So instead of once saved, always saved, it's more biblical to say that a true saint will persevere to the end because every true saint will be met with opposition. And that is the opposition of the world, the flesh, and the devil who tries to manipulate the first two. So someone who's truly saved can't simply lie on their back in the world and worldliness and claim once saved, always saved. Fair enough? So perseverance or preservation of the saints um, does not mean everyone that who's ever publicly confessed Jesus Christ with their mouth is eternally secure because profession of faith is not synonymous with possession of faith. So profession and possession are not synonymous. Many, you see, many Christians, true Christians, okay, now many Christians sit and they wonder you know, will I finally make it? You know, when I die, will I be there? When the Lord returns, will I be there? And they're almost constantly troubled. Some uh, wondering, you know, will I make it to the end? Will I, as they say, persevere? And part of the, the dilemma is that we all know at least one person who at one time started out professing Christ. They had a powerful testimony. They made a lot of noise. They, they just launched off the pad like a rocket. 
They read all of these books on doctrine. They knew all this stuff. And you look around today and they're nowhere to be found within the local community of the saints. They're gone. And they're actually the opposite of what they once appeared to be with regard to intensity of zeal for Christ is only matched now by, by the uh, lack of interest in Christ. They're gone. So therefore people wonder, will I? That's called apostasy. The Bible refers to that as apostasy. Turning your back and walking away from that which you once so zealously professed. Apostasy has always happened and always will happen. And no person, and no pastor, is given by God an, an infallible eye when discerning the heart of another. In both Peter and Paul, the apostles were associated with those who turned out to be apostate. We read the scripture, we, we read of, of Demas, who was heavily involved with the apostolic work of Paul's ministry, who Paul said has left me for this present evil world. He's departed. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 20, we read of Hymenaeus and Alexander, who, Paul writes, made shipwreck of their faith. John writes in 1 John 2 that those who go out because of a love for this present world were never truly converted. 1 John 2.19, those who went out from us were really never of us. For have, had they been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out from us proving that they were never really of us. So naturally, they, they were with the disciples in, in terms of you know, outward appearance. Before they uh, departed, they made a very vocal uh, profession of faith. Loud, perhaps, but Jesus makes it clear in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, there's a lot of people who, who profess what they do not possess. And in the last day, they'll be crying out, Lord, Lord, but wait a minute, time out, time out. Didn't we do all this in your name? We did do this in your name. We did all these apparent miracles in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me. Notice what he says. I never knew you. He doesn't say, I knew you for a season and then you went south and betrayed me. No, you never were part of my true church. I never knew you. In Matthew 13, Jesus you know, gives the parable of the sower. The seed represents the word of God and that's always good. Amen? The problem's with the soil. And he talks about the seed that fell on stony ground. And he said, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So, so here then is one who, who has heard that outward call of the gospel. Remember, we looked at the difference between the outward call of the general gospel proclamation and in the inward call of the Holy Spirit, the effectual call. This stony ground guy um, heard the outward call, but not the inward effectual call of the Holy Spirit, and appeared to be unseen for a while. Appeared to be part of the, the body of Christ 
for a while. Now, it's important that we understand that the whole purpose, we looked at divine election, the whole purpose of God's election is to bring his people safely to heaven. If you're chosen before the foundation of the earth, which we know anyone who's in Christ was chosen then, that they will enter into glory. Therefore, what he starts, he promises to finish. So he not only initiates the Christian life, but the Holy Spirit is also the sanctifier of life, the convictor, the helper, and the one who ensures that we're preserved to the end, sealed with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Ephesians 1. Listen to the words of Jesus again in the high priestly prayer. Just hours before he went to the cross, he, he, he prays to his father. He says, Father, now glorify your son that he may glorify you, for you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That from out of that larger group is a smaller group, those given to him, right? Verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then Jesus went on to sanctify himself for the sake of that group. He set himself apart for the cross to atone for their sin, not the world. Jesus didn't atone for the sins of the world without exception. He atoned for the sins of people from throughout the world without distinction, those given to him by the Father. So those he prayed for, he goes on and atones for. Okay, we looked at that. So notice this, though. How long? Notice, I give them eternal life. How long is that? Yes, it's very simple. Forever. To whom does he give eternal life? To all that has been given to him by the Father. How many of the all? All of the all that are given to him by the Father. All whom you have given me. In John 6, verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, says Jesus, of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Will some given to the Son by the Father be lost? No, none. So since we have nothing to do with getting saved, we have nothing to do with keeping ourselves saved. If it were up to me to save myself... And if I did, then I would lose what I think I gained in myself tomorrow. Yesterday, actually. I would, have lost, I would have lost my salvation if I could have. And it's due to the fact that, that salvation is entirely by the grace of God, not the vacillating will of John Leader, right? Vacillating will. His is unmoved. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them, here it is again, eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Notice, okay, who hears? His sheep. Who are they known by? The great shepherd. What do they do? They follow him. And what do they have? Eternal life. Which of them will perish? None perseverance of the saints, preservation of the saints. John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 5.24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, what? Will have? Has.
has eternal life. Not will have, but has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, is passed from death to life. Now listen to the church in Corinth. Just a spotless bunch, weren't they? Positionally, indeed. (laughs) To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if salvation was not certain and uh, eternal life, as the Arminians taught and still teach, that, that it can be lost, then the doctrines of election, the doctrines of regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification would all be called into question. Fair enough? Here's a beautiful, well-stated, biblical summarization of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Quote, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called, and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. End quote. In other words, all who are truly born again will be preserved by God's power and will, and consequently will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. That doesn't mean, which we'll get to, I hope, if we have time, that a, a Christian can't radically fall into some deep sin. Because they can. Can I get a witness to that? <laughs> now, some, some Armenian preachers in our day actually teach that once you profess Jesus with your mouth, you're in forever. Okay, listen to some of these fabulous quotes. Most of whom are our dispensational preachers. Charles Stanley. What? Charles Stanley, I love him. I listen to him, right? Well, listen to what he says in his book, Eternal Security. Even if a believer for all practical purposes becomes an unbeliever, his salvation's not in jeopardy. We are saved because at a moment in time we expressed faith in the Lord. End quote. Zane Hodges. The Bible, quote, the Bible makes it clear that many believers will not persevere with loyalty to Christ. Some will become apostates, yet continue to be Christians, end quote. Well, that's what I said. John MacArthur, in his book, Gospel According to Jesus, quotes a preacher that says this. I forgot to look up the guy's name. It's in his book. Quote, You can even become an atheist, but if you once accept Christ as Savior, you cannot lose your salvation even though you deny God. Well, Jesus said, you deny me before a man, I'll deny you before my Father. So the problem here, there's a correction. You can't lose what you never had. They never had what they claimed to have. Amen? So apostasy, what that is, is it's a final repudiation of one's said allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, a deliberate, decisive um, rejection of the gospel to where you apostatize, perhaps, in the First Testament, back to Judaism. 
You might apostatize into agnosticism, atheism, hedonism, uh, humanism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnessism. I mean, whatever ism you want. Now, when Jude opens this letter, he opens with, with great concern in, in to, to contend for the gospel. Because false teachers had surfaced, sowing their seed and perverting God's grace into licentious sensuality, verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and, die our own, and deny our only master, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, they came in as though God's grace is an excuse to live any way that suits your appetites. And they pressed this and they pushed this. And Jude's concern here is that those who play fast and loose with the grace of God have taken the first step towards apostasy. And he defines them. Verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. They feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds slept away by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn. Twice dead. Uprooted. Wild waves of the sea. Casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands and his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But those not swayed, those not deceived, we, re- we read earlier, are kept. This is the fruit. They're kept because they were called. And those that are called were divinely chosen before the foundation of the earth. And as such, they will be preserved to the end. And he keeps them. So, question. Somebody, somebody has in here, I know. If a person who's truly and inwardly a child of God, if they cannot lose their salvation, as you're telling me, preacher boy, then why does God warn against denying the faith and falling into apostasy? Why all the warnings then? That's a good question. And there's a simple answer. Because God ordains the ends as well as the means to the ends. Amen? There's a beautiful example of this in principle. If you guys remember when we were in the book of Acts, remember the shipwreck of Paul? In Acts 27, Paul's on a ship in a great storm filled with prisoners. They're en route to Rome, grain ship from Egypt. There's a great storm. Paul stood up and he said, no life will be lost in this storm. Okay, remember that? So some prisoners on board think that's a great idea. So they, they decide to abandon ship and start lowering down the lifeboats. 
And Paul sees it, and he says, hey, hold up, fellas. Unless they stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. Isn't it good? As a result of the warning, the soldiers cut off the lifeboats, and the lifeboats fell away, thus preventing any sailors from abandoning ship, and they all made it to shore. Amen? So God used the warning to fulfill the promise that he had given to Paul. So apostasy warnings in Scripture, and there are plenty, in no way contradict the doctrine of grace and the preservation of the saints to the end. So God uses warnings to keep his true people on the narrow way leading to the narrow gate. Here's a question. I, th- I thought about this. Think about this. Here's a question I came up with. Who else would be concerned with apostatizing other than those who can't possibly apostatize? Right? Again, who else would be concerned with apostatizing than those who can't possibly apostatize? On the other hand, who would care less about apostatizing than those who have apostatized? In Luke 13, 24, Jesus said, strive. Here's a warning. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and they will not be able. Those who apostatize, quite simply, beloved, were never truly saved. The Arminian false theology that you can fall from grace once having salvation and then lose it is heresy. There are those who have outwardly been members of the local assembly. And they may have experienced firsthand the many blessings of God. And they're not in. Not unlike Judas. What did Judas do? He went out casting out demons in the name of Jesus, healing the sick in the name of Jesus. And, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke about people like Judas You'll say to me, I cast out demons in your name. We did this in your name and that in your name. And I'll say, I never knew you. In Hebrews 6, those who've tasted the word of God, those who've tasted the age to come, those who have experienced the operation of the Holy Spirit, all around them have walked away. A lot of experience, but not teaching. Hebrews 6 does not teach that the ones who fall into apostasy were ever genuinely saved. It doesn't teach it. Although I heard a guy on the radio say it does. I don't know how he concludes that if you just read the text. So scripture teaches that if after such an intimate exposure to God's truth, one rejects to the point of trampling underfoot the blood of Christ, the day of gospel opportunity ends. Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 12. And it says it's impossible to bring them back to repentance. That's spooky to me, especially some of the people I know. One of our former elders is an apostate. And we took him up, we brought him under church discipline. I wrote him, he lives in a different state now. And I said, what you're saying is apostasy. He goes, call me an apostate, so be it. So be it. Having preached and taught classes on doctrine, 
really? Once saved, always saved. No, you were never in in the first place. So with great opportunity comes great responsibility. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the religious sect of the day who knew the law and should have recognized Christ as Messiah? What did he say? Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour, widow, you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Levels of punishment in hell? Obviously so. So perseverance, preservation of the saints, my last point here, does not mean that a Christian will never disobey God. Everyone in here would agree with that this morning because you've all disobeyed God within the last 24 hours some way, right? And I, me probably more so than you in the last 24 hours for sure, right? Perseverance or preservation of the saints does not mean that a Christian cannot or will not ever fall into deep and even scandalous sin. You know, we talk about backsliding. We, we talk about moral lapses and so on. <clears throat> it is possible for a Christian to experience a very, very serious fall. And, and I don't think there's any sin other than, of course, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That, that, a, that a saved believer, that a saved Christian can't fall into. Adultery, what about murder? Yes, even murder. If the wrong place, at the wrong time, yes. You know, I have friends in prison who are Christians who are they're in there for life. And they're in Christ. Jeremiah 32, these great new covenant promises of God. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. That doesn't mean that they won't sin. That doesn't mean that they won't stumble. That doesn't even mean they won't temporarily, like, depart. Temporarily. We look, for example, at the, our great model, King David, man after God's own. Heart, a regenerate man, a regenerate man after God's own heart who had a deep, fervent love for the things of God. A man who committed adultery and conspired to have his lover's husband killed in war and organized it all. Serious sin, serious fault, radical sin, radical fall, absolutely. Until what? Because he was the Lord's, what did God do? Sent his prophet to the man. Sent his prophet to the man. Convicted the man. Bringing, who brought him to repentance? God brought him to repentance because he's owned by God. Divine chastening of God. For those God's loves, he chastened. Who would want to wander off into sin who professes Christ and there's, there's no consequence, there's no chastening? That would be frightening. A lot of times we can get puffed up. Paul, or Peter, or Paul actually, gives us warning against being puffed up in our own spiritual strength, right? He says, therefore, let anyone who think he stands take heed lest he 
fall, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. And then right after that, in the next verse, there's no temptation overtaken you except such as common to every man, but with every temptation, God leaves the way of, of escape. So take heed, he says. Peter, having been forewarned by Jesus himself, rejected Christ, denied him three times, swearing he never knew him, committing public treason. And when he was being warned by Jesus, Peter said, Lord, that will never happen. These all may fall away, but not me. Not me. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you and sift you like wheat, but what? I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. When you turn, strengthen the brothers. May we never say, I will never, and then fill in the blank. I don't care what it is. Amen? We must never depend on our own arm of flesh, or we will fall. I would totally be an apostate if it weren't for the grace of God in Christ, period. I'm convinced he has me in the ministry just for that. Like, I know he exists. There's no doubt about it. There is no other way to be saved but through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because I'm such a wretched sinner, I would be gone but by the grace of God. It's only the grace of God that sustains you and holds you. Don't think it's you. Don't think it's you. Because then you can be an Armenian and you won't really like it here that much. (laughs) So why all the warnings when you preach? It's a means to his end. Don't jump off the ship or you'll die. Right? See, to Peter, Jesus said, I've prayed for you. To Judas, he said, what you do, do quickly. John 17, I have not prayed for the world, but only for those you have given me from out of the world. So Peter couldn't apostatize. Because he was the Lord's. Judas could and did because he's not the Lord's. So that what? The scripture might be what? Fulfilled. How do you reconcile all that? I don't know. You figure it out. Don't ask me. (laughs) That's what the Bible says and I believe it. R.C. Sproul has said, and I quote, true Christians can never have radical and serious falls, but I'm sorry, true Christians can have radical and serious falls, but never total and final falls from grace. In other words, right, you can fall on board as a believer, but you can't fall overboard, right? So the preserving activity of God is what undergirds the saint's perseverance because he preserves us we're enabled to persevere to the end world the flesh and the devil because the world is always trying to lure our inward sinfulness right that we still struggle with until the day we die there's a lure toward we're lured towards worldliness our flesh right The world screams, come on. Actually, it doesn't scream, it just whispers, come on. This is an awesome way of life. 
And then the devil, all he can do to the believer is just try to manipulate in a chess match those first two things. He has no power over any believer, for he who is in us is greater than he that's in the world. We can fall prey to the whisper when we don't yield to the escape route for which the Lord provides, amen? Because with every temptation, there's a way of escape. When I sin, I have either denied or just blinded momentarily to the way of escape. And sometimes it's just as easy as keeping your mouth shut. With me, anyway, that type of sin. Have I just not said that? Look at Colossians 1.21. Or actually, I think, yeah, there we have it. Okay, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, okay? Once were. Doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. Great promise, amen? If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Not to earn it, but to manifest the reality of the life that's in you. You don't earn eternal life by that. It just manifests the reality that you have eternal life. Jesus said the one who endures to the end will be saved. He did not say, repeat this prayer after me, and once saved, always saved, right? Walk the aisle, and once saved, always saved. No. The one who endures to the end will be saved. In other words, glorified. Not make it to the end and then earn salvation, but manifest the reality that salvation was birthed into you. There's two kinds of people described in the book of Revelation. You don't read about this in the Left Behind series. <laughs> don't read those books, please. Two groups of people, the world and those who overcome. Overcomers, those who persevere, revealed as preserved. So scripture often per- forbids what is ultimately impossible Okay, that is that any true believer can apostatize. So scripture forbids what's impossible. Scripture also commands us what is impossible, such as be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, right? So there's a call for God's people to strive towards the highest standards of God's imperatives of his law, which requires in ever-increasing dependence upon his what? Grace. (laughs) On his grace. So the, the true saint will best persevere by consistently using the means of grace. Okay, since we're always grappling with indwelling sin, we must always be learning and recognizing what triggers the inward sin. That, that I still have. What do I need to avoid the best I can? I need to recognize the fiery darts of the devil. I need to recognize the world that attracts my indwelling sin. So this is a three-front battle. World, 
flesh, and the devil. So we need the church, the means of grace, the body of Christ. You need brothers, you need sisters. Forsaking the assembly will not do you any good. Sitting under the word, being in a church that preaches the whole counsel of God, that's the means of grace God provides for us. To best persevere, hear the word, fellowship together, to be filled up on the word of God and able to persevere. Amen? With a comfortable assurance. Well, I'm out of time. With a comfortable assurance of, of persevering because we know we're, sir, uh, pers- we know we're preserved, we can sing along with John Newton of God's amazing grace, right? Through many dangerous toils and snares I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So that's it. There's Tulip. I hope you've been encouraged by it, reminded of it. Has anyone's eyes been uh, opened to the doctrines of grace that you never realized before? You don't. You can raise your hand. That'd be great to see if you want to. But hopefully, it's reassuring. Amen, sister. Thanks for the courage. Okay, let's let, let me close with this quote about the doctrines of grace. Just just listen intently here, and this is it. Quote, The doctrines of grace certainly are humbling. It is humbling to think that when I sin, the fault is totally mine. But if I do any good, the credit must go entirely to God. It is humbling to learn that there are doctrines that I will never fully understand because of my limitations as a finite creature. It is humbling to find out that but for the grace of God, I would still be in bondage to sin. It is humbling to discover, to discover that I found God only because he first found me. It is humbling to realize that I stand firm in the faith only because God keeps me from falling. These doctrines are very humbling, and perhaps that is why not all Christians accept them in spite of their strong and clear biblical basis, end quote. Christians refuse them. And it's only because of pride. And they just tear our human pride in half. Amen? May we walk humbly with the Lord who has saved us. Amen, brothers and sisters? Lord, we do thank you for your grace. We do thank you for the humbling reality of divine Sovereign grace. Bless your people, Lord, this morning and these truths to their hearts that uh, we will persevere and we are persevering because you preserve us and will preserve us to the end. So may they ignite a fire in our hearts and and, in ever deep um, thankfulness for all that's been accomplished and is being done for us according to your grace alone. In Jesus' name, amen.